Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. looking at Psalm 14 tonight as part of our prophecy update um, trying to look at psalms that have a strong messianic flavor and uh, we looked at Psalm 2 and definitely Psalm 2 there's no question about it and that psalm being quoted in the New Testament as well this psalm ends in verse 7 with the hope of the Lord coming back and uh, setting up his kingdom in Zion. So we are going to look at that as I was uh, reading through this and and my desire for these prophecy updates. And it might take more than, I mean, I'm sure that there are more than just 12 out of 150 Psalms. In the book of Psalms, I'm sure there are more than just 12 Psalms that deal with the coming of Christ. So um, I prepared for 14, and then I was looking at Psalm 9, thinking that could work as well. And so in my head, as I prepare for this, I thought, well, it would be good for me to just, like from Psalm 14, until next month, if I can figure out which is the second or third or fourth month of or Wednesday of the month, just read through the Psalms and kind of, get a good sense of them instead of waiting till the week before and that's what I did last this month and uh, so I'll confess that to you hopefully we can get a little better at this but it's a good psalm and uh, it really speaks to me a bit about what's going on in our nation in our world today and Psalm 14 is nearly identical to Psalm 53 And you can check that out later, and you can compare them side by side. Psalm 53, I believe, only has six verses. Psalm 14 has seven verses. They are identical in their opening in the middle section, and in the last couple of verses, they change, like Psalm 14, verses 5 and 6, are considerably different than Psalm 53, verse 5. But... Very similar. Also, a difference between the two in Psalm 14, he is saying Yahweh, the Lord, so the Y-H-W-H, and in Psalm 53, it's Elohim, God. And so wherever it says Lord in Psalm 14, it uses the term God in Psalm 53. So uh, rarity that that happens, but here we have two Psalms that are nearly identical. It's a Psalm of David. And he addresses the depravity of mankind and the fool's purposeful rejection of God being morally corrupt, evildoers, they oppress God's people. And yet David is confident of God's protection and he anticipates the day when God vindicates Israel. And it speaks about David's longing for God's kingdom to be established on the earth a longing that we should have as well. So before we get into 
any of reading the word, let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing upon it. So we thank you tonight, Lord, for the word that you have given us. And Lord, for the past couple of days for me to be able to glean through the truths found here in Psalm 14. And I pray, Father, that even now your Holy Spirit will teach me, will teach us. Help us to hear, Lord, what the Spirit is saying to the church Lord, the church throughout the world, but Lord, specifically, we ask that you would teach us here in this church at Calvary Chapel Lake Villa. And we thank you and we give you praise this night in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it's an easy one, and I'm going to read through the whole psalm, all seven verses, and then we'll drop back and teach through it. He says, verse 1, Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, and they have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven and upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God, and they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? They are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people Let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. So we begin in verse 1, and the fool has said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So, naval is the Hebrew word. We would look at it and say nabal is the Hebrew word for full or to be futile, worthless, a good-for-nothing, naval, the Hebrew word for full. And it reminds us of Nabal, of whom his own wife Abigail said to David when David and his men were coming to kill Nabal because he refused to give some food to David's men, in 1 Samuel 25, we get this account. And David's men had been protecting the flocks of Nabal. Their shepherds had come under the protection of David, and David thought it was just just that they should glean from their duties of protection to be able to receive some full food from them, from this full Naval or Nabal. And uh, Abigail got word of what Nabal had done in refusing David and heard that David was coming to wipe them out. And she came to David, 1 Samuel 25, 25, said, Please, let not my Lord regard this scoundrel, Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I... Your maidservant did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So Abigail actually kept 
David from shedding innocent blood. The fact that Nabal refused him uh, shouldn't have caused his death. And Abigail kept him from shedding the innocent blood. And God took care of the situation anyways, because once Abigail told Nabal what she had done, how she had uh, prevented bloodshed upon their people and had given bread and uh, some lambs to David and his men, he ended up having a stroke and dying anyways. But I have to ask the question, what parents would name their kid fool? She said, my Lord, regard this scoundrel Nabal, for his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Hey, fool, get over here. I I just have to question the parents on that one. And if your nickname is fool, I think you should find a better nickname than Nabal. But we find this, and fool is a word that we may hear even used to this day. It's one that I've always tried to not use or to call people. Jesus gave this warning in Matthew 5.22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, is will be in danger of the council, and whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. So I've always held back. I doubt if I've... I don't know. You probably won't. If If I have, let me know, and I'll apologize. But I doubt if I've called anyone, hey, you fool. I just try not to use that. Jesus gave a warning, and uh, I'll hold on to Jesus' warning. Yet this is the word that David used to describe those who have rejected the existence of God. And it says in verse 1 there, they say in his heart, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now this can be taken in two different ways. And actually my example in the first way, those who do not believe in God, the example I had as I was reading this over earlier in Psalm 10.4 doesn't necessarily mean that the people don't believe in God, but Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. So it doesn't mean that they don't believe that there is a God. They just simply don't seek God. God is in none of their thoughts. And that is an interesting thing to me. We were singing that last song, Jesus, Jesus, how I love you, Jesus. And... uh My whole life I've been singing about Jesus. From a young boy in church playing in a Christian band for 10 years, and I'm still not tired of singing about Jesus. Jesus is in all of my thoughts. But there are people out there, and many today, God is in none of their thoughts. They do not seek God. So that is a condition of people of fools who do not seek God, say there is no God. Second, they may acknowledge that God exists, but see him as unconcerned with humanity. And some of the Bible commentators believe that this is where this falls in the category. The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. But actually, possibly meaning that God is unconcerned. Psalm 10 11 
So we just read from Psalm 10:4, and here we are in Psalm 10:11. Another condition: He has said in his heart, "God has forgotten; He hides His face; He will never see." And so here is a fool, one who, though he believes that there is a God, God forgot. <laughs> God hides His face, and God won't see. It doesn't matter. God's busy somewhere else. He's not worried about me. But the absence of belief in God results in a depravity of character. Therefore, the fool becomes corrupt. He does abominable works, and he is unable to do good. This reminded me of Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 21 through 25, that a lot of Romans chapter 1 deals with this fall of man and how they spiral down away from God. But verses 21 through 25, it says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, that the lust of their hearts, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So the depravity of the fool who says there is no God or thinks that God is unconcerned with humanity, it leads to hearts that become corrupt and doing abominable works, unable to do any good. And we find that that is a condition of our own nation today. David saw it as a condition of his people. And here we find that it is certainly a condition of our nation today. But how did this begin? Well, there have been those who have been hating the Word of God for a long time, probably since it was first written by Moses in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There have been those who have been in opposition against the Lord God. And we see those battles, especially discover them in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis that kind of set up the remainder of the Bible that teaches about the depravity of man, the fall of man, and also the redemption of mankind that would come out of one nation beginning in Genesis chapter 12 as God reached out to Abraham and called him initially to leave his country, to go to the land that he would show him. But then through Abraham, uh, singling out a people that would, from which the Messiah would come. But here in our own nation, I was thinking about the removal of prayer in the Bible in our public school system. And it's evident that prayer in the Bible held foundational role, roles in our country's formation, especially with the pilgrims all the way to the inauguration of our first president, uh, George Washington. He used the Bible during his inauguration, and because of that, a Bible has been used in each of the inaugurations of the president 
They get to pick their Bibles if they choose to. But he also said a prayer, George Washington. He said in fervent supplication to the Almighty Being. So they use terms like deity and Almighty Being or God uh, at that time at the founding of our nation. But during his inaugural address, our great testaments to the importance of prayer in the Bible in the life of the nation's first president. But by the close of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, there were, there are to this day, a growing number of people who no longer value the importance of prayer and the Bible, thus dividing our nation. The fool sees the removal of prayer and the Bible from public institutions such as our school system, but also other government buildings, as an improvement, being freed from the bondage of God's Word. That's how they see it and view it. And yet the removal, it came by the result of two U.S. Supreme Court decisions, the first and that of prayer. It was an 8-to-1 ruling in the 1962 landmark case of Engel versus Vettel, where school-sponsored prayer in public schools, they deemed it to be unconstitutional. And since that time, school-sponsored prayers in all public schools here in the United States have ceased. There was only one judge that dissented from this agreement, Potter Student, uh, Stewart, sorry, Potter Stewart, was the dissenting judge who said this in his opinion, So this is written, his written opinion. I think the court has misapplied a great constitutional principle. I cannot see how the official religion is established by letting those who want to say a prayer say it. On the contrary, I think that to deny the wish of these school children to join in reciting this prayer is to deny them the opportunity of sharing in the spiritual heritage of our nation. And he had it. He nailed it because that's what they want, to break away from our spiritual heritage and to give us a different heritage. I was thinking about this as I was driving over today, and uh, I saw just the whole border crisis and um, the mass caravans that are coming. I mean, caravans, we think of caravans of a little minivan driving down the road, and these are just street full of people as long as I could see and a two-way highway that was just crowded with people as long as we could see in this video clip that I saw tonight of people coming to the U.S. And yet they're coming from all points of the world and many of them are coming with a belief in a different God. And there are those who are very evil in our nation looking for power, looking for a vote, but they're going to be changing the demographic of our own nation, of a people who, um, well, where someone like me, who grew up kind of liking the nation that he grew up in, happens to be white-skinned and happens to be a Christian, suddenly we are enemies. They're changing the spiritual heritage of our nation Justice Potter Stewart said. Then the Supreme Court, one year later, another 8-to-1 decision, 
You can guess who dissented from that. They actually decided, or they actually cited the 1962 decision against prayer and said that school-sponsored Bible reading constitute government endorsement of a particular religion and thus violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. And so once again, Justice Stewart, slow down, Justice Stewart dissented, and in his dissenting opinion, a little longer paragraph, he said, What our Constitution indispensably protects is the freedom of each of us, be he Jew or agnostic, Christian or atheist, Buddhist or free thinker, to believe or disbelieve, to worship or not to worship, to pray or keep silent according to his own conscience, uncoerced, unrestrained by government. It is conceivable that these school boards or even all school boards might eventually find it possible to administer a system of religious exercise during school hours in such a way as to meet this constitutional standard, in such a way as completely to free from any kind of official coercion those who do not affirm or affirmatively want to participate But I think we must not assume that school boards so lack the qualities of inventiveness and goodwill as to make it impossible to achieve of that goal, the achievement of that goal. So he's basically saying that, hey, we have smart people running our schools. I don't know if we agree with that statement today, but we have smart people running our schools. They could figure it out if we let them. But... Supreme Court ruled against that. The Bible and prayer, 1962-1963, were pulled out. Now, it's good to consider Vice President John Adams during his first year of office concerning the importance of faith, morality, and the newly formed United States said this, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And sadly, John Adams' words are proving themselves true. As we watch destruction of this once great nation and the morality of this nation as they decline away from God. Now, um, I was coming over to the church a little bit later on Monday morning. I was just kind of... It wasn't the Super Bowl game that caused this. I, I mean, as soon as it was over, I was gone. Um, I didn't care about watching the trophies and watching big men cry and dance around and other men's cry because they didn't get the trophy. I didn't care about any of that. I hadn't seen any of it. I haven't even looked, went back. It was a game. The game was over. I was heading home, going to bed. But I was wiped out and uh, was heading over to the church after 9 a.m. on Monday morning. Normally I'm heading here earlier than that, and but I'm glad because I, I caught the broadcast on a radio station of Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement, and he caught my attention by a couple of things that he said. And this was Monday morning, and I haven't been able to get them out of my mind, so I'm going to get them in your mind now. And uh, I actually spent time transcribing the words that got it right. The first, it was right after his commentary on Jeremiah 12:10 that reads this, 
And this is the King James Bible in the uh, New King James. It reads rulers, but in the King James it reads pastors. I looked up the Hebrew word, and it could be translated as a shepherd or a pastor. So I think this fits. I mean, rulers, yes, Israel's kings were deemed shepherds over their people. But from the King James... Jeremiah 12:10 Many pastors have destroyed my vineyard they have trodden down my portion underfoot they have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness and then he went on to say after reading that verse the shepherds have destroyed and i think today of how many men who take the title of pastor who are really destroying the fields the flock of god leading them astray they have made it desolate and being desolate, it mourns me. It mourns unto me. The whole land is made desolate because no man really lays it to heart. I think that one of the greatest problems that we are facing today is that we are living in a desperate world. Things are really getting desperate. Look at the moral situation of our country. Look at the moral climate it is getting desperate. Look at the economic situation. It is getting desperate. Look at the international situation. It is getting desperate. But God's people aren't desperate. I think the time has come that we really need to take it to heart and get desperate before the Lord. When we need to really gather together more and more, assemble for prayer, that God would send revival that will really stir the nation to its very core at its very heart. Because we're going down the tubes fast, but no one is laying it to heart. And God said that this is the problem. Things are going down, but no one is really laying it to heart. We say, oh my, isn't that horrible? But that's it. We're not really getting the desperate. We're not really getting desperate before God over the situation. No man is really laying it to heart. Now, I, I looked, and I'd have to do some research, and I didn't. Um, had an emergency auto repair that I had to do this afternoon. I was finished with my sermon, but I did want to see when Pastor Chuck taught this. But he's been gone for over 10 years. He's been in heaven for 10 years plus now. And his voice sounded younger. And so I would say that he penned these words like 20 years at least. And uh, he could have written them about today. Now, there is a crisis in clergy. This came out at the beginning of January. The Barna Group, a Christian research organization, and said in 2022 that a number of pastors who have given serious consideration to quitting full-time ministry has risen dramatically over the past year. And the Hartford Institute for Religion Research had an article in January 11th, 2024, saying that more than 50% of American pastors have considered leaving their ministries since 2020. Half of the preachers in the United States thinking about it's time to hang it up. 
I don't know if I agree with that. But it really tells you about the spiritual condition of our church. Barna Group also says, Are any of the following reasons why you have considered... They asked the pastors this. Are any of the following reasons why you have considered quitting full-time ministry? Select all that apply. And so here they listed out some bullet points. I'll read the bullet points and the percentage. This is why they are saying they're thinking about leaving the ministry. Immense stress of the job, 56%. Feelings of loneliness and isolation, 43%. Current political divisions, 38%. Unhappiness about how their work affects their families, 29%. Permissiveness about their church's future, 29%. Pessimistic, that's better. About their church's future, 29%. Conflicts in their church about church's direction, 29%. Kind of the same. Steady decline of their church, 24%. Dissatisfaction of their job, 22%. Lack of respect for the congregants, 21%. So pastors also mentioned feeling unable to cope with the demands of the ministry, lacking support from their staff, being called to another profession, experience of personal Crisis of faith, feeling disrespected by people outside the church. But thankfully, there's the other half of the pastors and why they want to stay. And this is another bullet points. And this is, this is where I fall into place. 83% of pastors who haven't considered quitting, quitting believe their ministry has value. 75% say that they have a duty to fulfill their calling. 73% say that they are satisfied with their job. 67 feel that 67% feel that their family supports them. 59% believe that they also have community support. 52% are confident as a leader. 29% have been more energized by their work. 27% say their church is growing. 27% aren't sure what they would do outside of their ministry. 23% have gotten new vision for their work. So clearly, we need to be desperate. We need to be praying for our pastors to give them a renewed sense of calling in their lives as they lead these fellowships. Again, Pastor Chuck Smith from the same broadcast, different passage. He's in Jeremiah 13. And this is what he said right after reading verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to read again from the King James more scripture this time than Pastor Chuck's commentary, but reading Jeremiah 13, 1 through 7, the King James Bible. And thus says the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle and put it upon thy loins and put it not in water. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord and I put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which thou hast upon thy loins, and arise and go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rocks. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord commanded. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence, which I commanded thee to hide there, and I went to the Euphrates, and digging, I took the girdle from the place where I'd hid it, 
And behold, the girdle was marred, and it was profitable for nothing. So Pastor Chuck's commentary. And uh, we read last week when going through, and I mentioned this last week too, uh, Joshua, going through the book of Joshua, and it said there that Joshua did all that Moses had commanded him. And I mentioned last week that um, I feel as a pastor in the Calvary Chapel movement, I've been striving to uh, follow the desire of Pastor Chuck, even though he's not here. Um, he was my pastor for many years, even though I only sat under his teaching for probably 22 months. I've listened to him, read him. I know his stories, and I strive to um, represent the Calvary Chapel movement to my best of my ability. And uh, I think Joshua did that with Moses. And here we see that Pastor Chuck's commentary, and it's this, he's talking to us today. The men were conscious that it was God that had blessed and made our nation great, but they are trying to hide the truth from the children today. And they're trying to hold up the capitalists, free enterprise. They're saying that it is free enterprise that has made us strong. That just stood out to me because... Um, today, and he doesn't mention anything about socialism or communism, but when we look at the political climate of our world and, and we have those who are saying, it's capitalism that's made us strong. It's socialism that will uh, strengthen our nation. And there's that battle between the isms. And here, Pastor Chuck, he's nailing it again. He's getting it. He said, they try to hold up capitalists, free enterprise, saying that's, what made us strong. Now fight for free enterprise. Fight for the capitalistic system. They can't inspire me to fight for free enterprise of the capitalistic system. I'll fight for the freedom that we have been given by God to worship Him, to serve Him. And I love that. But it's tragic that we have turned from the basic roots upon which this nation was founded. We were once beautiful before the world. God's blessing was upon our land. But we, like the linen girdle, have become good for nothing in the eyes of the world. It just seemed like he was writing commentary about 2024. We once sang, America, America, God shed the grace on thee. And that still needs to be our prayer. So verses 2 and 3, we find that none who does good. So when you read through the Psalms, um, and this is a, a practice of many of the uh, poetic writings, whether you're looking at the Psalms or Proverbs, a lot of times they'll repeat, repeat phrases, and they're actually maybe switch them up just a little way in how they had said something to strengthen their argument. And this is what they're doing here, David, in verse 1. If you recall, he says, uh, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there are none who does good. Now he strengthens that in verses 2 and 3. He says, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God, and they have all turned aside they have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And so this is just a method of Hebrew poem writing of that day to take a point and then to emphasize the same point with stronger words. 
And the fool does not acknowledge the existence of God. God is actively, though, observing his creation. So they say, there is no God. In verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. He's watching. Proverbs 19.21, it tells us, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Now the fool had... Not acknowledging God reminds me of a, a short discourse. It's been quite a while since I've seen this movie, but The Count of Monte Cristo. There was Abby Farah and Edmund Dantes. Now, Edmund had been falsely accused of something and put into prison for life, and he was in a place where he was never going to escape. And the prison keeper, just to remind them of how bad things were, would come and, and beat them on the anniversary of the day that they went to prison. So every year, they would get beaten, whipped, and then another year would go by, and they'd get whipped, and another year would go by, and they would get whipped, and all this was going on, and there was a once-priest warrior in a cell not too far away from Edmund who had been trying to dig his way out. And one day he popped up in Edmund's cell. And so he, he went the wrong direction and he didn't make it outside the walls. But they committed to dig together if the priest would teach Edmund everything, knowledge, and Edmund learned everything. And so then he finally said, here is your final lesson. Do not commit the crime for which you now serve the sentence. God said, vengeance is mine. And Edmund responded, I don't believe in God. And Abby replied to that, it doesn't matter. He believes in you. And there are those in this world that think, I don't believe in God. And yet God is looking down from heaven upon the children of men. God looks upon humanity in a query of two things. He says, first, to see if there are any who understand, and second, to see if there are any who seek him. The fool's rejection of God not only reveals their lack of understanding, but their lack of faith, being unwilling to seek the Creator. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And again, David speaks about the corrupt and depraved heart of the fool. And Paul picks this up in Romans 3.10 through 12, actually grabbing some of this from Psalm 14, Paul writes, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now some believe that the source of morality comes from our parents, maybe our culture, maybe it's government. And the church believes that that source of morality is God. Often when people define what it means to be good, they do so by comparing themselves to others. But such standards 
can never live up to that true meaning of what it means to be good. When God speaks about being good, he compares our sinfulness to his sinlessness, our unrighteousness to his righteousness, and our injustice to his justice. In Ephesians 4, 17 through 18, Paul writes, This I say, therefore I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkness, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. So our standard of good hasn't lived up to God's standard since the fall that took place there in the Garden of Eden. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we'll get back to the finishing Psalm 14 in a moment, but wanted to look at a little bit of what's going on in Israel. And uh, Dave, our worship leader, is very good about praying for Israel, reminding us to pray. It is day 131 of Israel's war against Hamas. And uh, President of Turkey, Erdogan, was meeting in Egypt, the first time since he's been to Egypt since 2012. And uh, it should have happened today, but this was at the beginning of this week. Hamas was supposed to send a delegation there in Cairo today. Whether they came or not, I haven't heard that yet. But Erdogan has been outspoken critic of Israel's war of Hamas even though the October 7th onslaught, um, he was discussing with the president of Egypt, President Sisi, not of Mexico. If you've been keeping up on your news, you know what that means. Egypt has been hosting joint efforts and the United States to broker a potential new truce and a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas. Israel delegation in Cairo on Tuesday and so just yesterday, but they're 13 and a half hours ahead of us, so um, about a day and a half ago, involved in the talks with the U.S., Egypt, and Hamas delegation was expected today. Erdogan has emerged as one of the Muslim world's hardest critics against Israel. Even though Hamas led this terrorist attack on October 7th, killing some 1,200 people in Israel, taking 253 hostages. And so these ongoing talks happening right now, and uh, Erdogan actually claimed that Benjamin Netanyahu was worse than the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler. And so they're trying to bring peace about in Jeremiah 6:14. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, "Peace, peace," when there is no peace. And it's also repeated, almost word for word, in Jeremiah 8:11. There were uh, this week two hostages in Operation Golden Hand, freed there in Gaza. And it happened on Monday morning. Israeli commando soldiers. Um, I believe working with one of the police um, intelligent forces 
kind of briefly looking through this article here, we're able to be deep in Rafa and 129 days of captivity. They were able to take a building, uh, killed the host, hostage takers and to free the two men and bring them out. None of the Israelis were harmed. There were several um, enemies that were destroyed. But uh, they were able to go into this building to breach it and to bring out two men. One was Lewis Har, and one of the soldiers that, as they were making their way out, he noticed that Har was barefooted. And so it says, without hesitation, he picked up Har, and he carried him to the meeting point before giving him his shoes and continued the operation barefooted. And they were extracted from the territory and then able to reach freedom there in Israel. So there's another analysis that I was reading, and these are coming. I purposely, I was like, Israel in the news, uh, war in Hamas, and everything that popped up. It's all right, CBS, MSNBC, CNN. It's like, I don't want to read any of your stuff. And so I kept going through, and so I purposely took everything from Israeli newspapers. And I want to hear what's happening in Israel by Israelis, and so this is coming from um, Israel Today, an analysis. And the title of this article is Israel, Iran, and the Middle East after four months of war. Israel has been embroiled in war for four months that began with the unprecedented and barbaric attack on the south of the country, and which initially appeared to have purely local character. It was Hamas against Israel again, so the people thought. And that is still the way it is viewed in circles outside of Israel. But recent developments in this war show that this is a regional conflict that is now clearly has potential to become a war with global proportions. A war is developing in the Middle East between the bloc-led of the Islamic Republic of Iran on the one hand and the Western bloc led by Israel, the United States, and Great Britain, which entered the arena via the Red Sea at the end of January. So the world is saying, hey, it's just a local thing we have to deal with. Israel's looking at it and saying, no, this is becoming something bigger that can have global impact. Also in the north, we think of Gaza and the south, and Israel has been engaged there, but in the north, IDF fighter jets, and this comes from the Jerusalem Post, and these are current articles. Actually, this was today's article. Yes. Um, IDF fighter jets engage in a wave of attack on Hezbollah after Israel soldier is killed. And this is Hezbollah in the north, and it talks about this attack that took place um, in Lebanese territory to the north of Israel. Earlier Wednesday morning, several soldiers were hospitalized after being hit by rocket fire in the northern cities as Hezbollah ramped up its attack on Israeli cities. So they're being attacked in the south. They're being attacked from the north. Iran is getting involved. Zechariah 2, 8, 9 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. 
For he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. For I will surely shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Israel is in a mess right now, but God is watching over the apple of his eye. So verses 4 through 7, finishing out, our Lord is our refuge. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they have they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So now this is talking about the wicked who become in a place of great fear. They realize that God is for Israel. God is with the generation of the righteous. Verse 6, you shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So David here, as he closes out this psalm, compares the unrighteous fools to the righteous who believe in God. First, the unrighteous fools are workers of iniquity. They have no knowledge. They consume the people of God. And they say there is no God. And they do not call upon the Lord. But they will be found in great fear and shame. And this really pointing to the coming judgment of the Lord, God's wrath, when it will be poured out upon the earth. Zephaniah 1.14 says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. And there the mighty men shall cry out. So first, the unrighteous fools. They are workers of iniquity. They have no knowledge. They believe there is no God. They do not call upon the Lord. And they come to this place of great fear and shame. So that speaks about a coming judgment. Second, the righteous of the Lord discover that God is with the generation of the righteous. Verse 5, he becomes their refuge in verse 6. He becomes their salvation in verse 7. And it causes the people of God to rejoice and be glad, verse 7. The Lord brings salvation and deliverance to his people. It reminds me that the righteous will be saved from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 1.10, a very end-time passage, where Paul says that we are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come that Jesus is coming and he will deliver us from the coming wrath of God. So David closed his song by praying to the Lord for salvation, for the salvation of Israel, that it would come out of Zion. And thankfully, David's prayer has been answered through the coming of Jesus Christ, who came and lived and walked and died and resurrected again ascended to heaven and is coming again. And may we rejoice and be glad. In Romans eleven twenty six and 27, Paul picks up on this again. And he says, so all Israel will be saved for it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So just some miscellaneous things before we close out. Three things that I wanted to 
just mention one. Um, I came across this, that Henry Blackaby, uh, he was the author of Experiencing God. A lot of people have went through that book. He passed away on February 10th. We're losing some of our spiritual leaders in this land. He is the one who, when someone, I famously quoted, I've never heard the quote before, but I was reading this article about him. Someone asked how we to know or to do the will of God, and Blackaby responded, watch and see where God is working and join him. (laughs) And he had an influence across denominational lines. Um, Also, uh, this afternoon after lunch, I was just kind of thumbing through Facebook and saw this post by Greg Laurie, and then I went to Calvary Chapel Downey to see what they had said on their website. They hadn't mentioned anything yet. On their Facebook post, it simply said this, Well done, good and faithful servant. Today, Pastor Jeff went to be with the Lord in glory. Please pray for the Johnson family. So Greg Laurie said of Pastor Jeff, My friend, for over 40 years, Pastor Jeff Johnson has gone to heaven. Jeff ran and finished his spiritual race well. God transformed him in his youth. During the Jesus movement, Jeff went on to marry the love of his life, Karen. They were one of the very first Calvary chapels to be planted. Calvary Chapel Downey has impacted thousands of lives because of their faithfulness. Jeff had... Never had a mean word for anyone. He was truly a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. He was a uniter, not a divider. From the day I first met him to his final days, Jeff maintained that first love, Revelation 2, relationship with Christ. He will be sorely missed. I am sure he has already heard the Lord say to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Well done, Jeff. We are so proud of you. So we lost one in the Calvary Chapel movement, Pastor Jeff. I believe I saw that he was born in 1948. So I'm looking at that and thinking, well, I was born in 1960, and that's only 12 years difference. It's getting too close. (laughs) And then I just, um, I I don't know, we watched Super Bowl on Saturday night, and uh, the He Gets Us Super Bowl ads are sparking a lot of debate, especially the second commercial that they aired. And I want to read an article that was written, and this comes from Christian Post. And I'll close with this. I'll close with a couple of verses of Scripture, but closing with this article. A Super Bowl ad from the Facebook Faith-based organization is igniting debate among Christian conservatives who express concern that its intended message of unity could be misconstrued as a justification for engaging in certain sins and that it fails to communicate a biblical, accurate account of Jesus. Andrew Walker, an ethics and public theology professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary also serves an ethics and public policy center, took on X Monday to raise the concerns. He said, he gets us. So he went on Twitter on Monday. He gets us framed evangelism as a leftward 
tinge, communicating the respectability of certain sins over others in the culture, although I'm not sure they had even communicated that the respectable sins were sins at all, he wrote. It is curious that Jesus never showed up washing feet at a Make America Great Again rally, a truck stop porn store in Alabama, or to a dilapidated and drugged-out factory worker in Ohio, or a white Christian nationalist in Michigan. If Jesus really is for all sinners, we should want white-wing racists converted as well, right? But how would Jesus respond to the feet washing of someone outside the Capitol on January 6th? suggesting that the videos displayed bias selecting situations that identified as opportunities for foot washing. Walker remarked that the ads, socially high status sins of the left are the ones Christians are told to evangelize, not low status sins of the deplorable rights. He maintained that the conditioning effect of these commercials in framing and reaffirming the social cast of America's sin and really something. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus redeemed sinners from both the right and left, whether high status or low status. Everyone is equal in their need for Christ. That could have been communicated, but wasn't, he concluded. And so I don't know if you need to put yourself through it, but um, this he gets this campaign as comes from the Green family. I believe they're the founders of the Hobby Lobby, and they've invested a lot of money, millions into this. And uh, they're painting a picture of a different Jesus. Um, one who washed feet was this commercial, but it also makes me think of the woman who was caught in adultery. And at the end of all of that, Jesus said to the woman, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. And so there was a standard that he set, and the commercial just makes it appear that live your life, he gets us. Live however you want to live, he gets us. Well, that's not the Bible. Yes, he understands us. He knows that we are depraved, we have fallen, and that we need salvation. And Jesus came to save sinners. And that's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And tonight, I was only able to look at a few things that are going on in our nation, in Israel, in our world. Yet, by looking at these things, it reminds us of just that desire of the soon return of Christ. Jesus said in Luke 21:28, Now when you see these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. And Lord, as we close out and prepare our hearts to receive communion, as we close out in one last song tonight, I pray, Father, that you would uh, prepare us to commune with you tonight with the bread and the cup, but also, Lord, to look for your soon return. We were reminded tonight, Lord, of a lot of things about the fool, about their disbelief in God, about the righteous, and Lord, your being their refuge, but also, Lord, of our need to be desperate for you and to pray for revival. I pray that we would be such a people and we would be, Lord, desperate for you 
that you would send revival upon this land. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.